If you have your Bibles, we're going to be going to Matthew chapter 28 this morning. We have spent so far a total of four Sunday mornings considering the question, will you be his disciple? Recognizing that you cannot have a genuine Bible-based walk with God without being a disciple. And uh, if you've missed any of those Sundays, I would encourage you to listen to those lessons on the podcast. Not saying that because I've taught them, but I do think they're very significant in what the Lord is wanting to do in our midst at the moment. And we have established in those lessons that a disciple is someone who is following, someone who is serving, and someone who is growing. And we spent a week on each one of those points, took some time at some length to teach those and to explain those. And it is our hope that those lessons have both helped our understanding and challenged us to apply that understanding. It is my prayer that each of us have reflected on our own following, serving, and growing. I know in preparing the lessons, much of what I've prepared has very much challenged me at a personal level. And so this morning, we are going to conclude this series with one more aspect of being a disciple. So far, the focus has been very introspective, or that means we've been looking inward at ourselves. We've been examining where we are as individuals, and I certainly hope that's been the case, that we haven't been using the lessons to examine the person on the left or the right or in front of us and behind us and say, yeah, that's right, Pastor wants you to listen. But I hope it's been introspective and we've been using it to let the Lord speak to us and considering ourselves. But this last lesson adds a dimension to that self-analysis and actually steps back to see the bigger picture beyond ourselves. And in our very first lesson, we started with the text we're going to begin with today, and that's Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. What name is that? That's the name of Jesus teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now in those three verses, in verse 19, in the New King James Version, this is how it reads, and it's on the slide. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the great commission if you're not familiar we we often throw that phrase around in church the great commission what does that mean a commission means we've been given a task to do the great commission is that it is the church's responsibility to take the gospel into the world mark the end of mark's gospel tells us to go into all the world preach the gospel to every creature the great commission is given to us that people might have a conversion experience, that they might be born again. We've spent some time mentioning the importance of that. But as a flow on from that, it is given to us to produce disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. And this passage in Matthew 28 is considered one of the Great Commission statements. There's a statement at the end of Mark, a statement at the end of Matthew, and a statement at the end of Luke, all bringing a, a, a focus on what the church is mandated to do. And in the simplest sense, the word disciple means a follower or a learner 
which underlines the connections in this verse between teaching all nations and making disciples of all nations. For the complete time of his ministry, for the whole three to three and a half years that Jesus was in the time of his ministry, he was very busy. He was totally committed to the task. You don't see him having a holiday. You don't see him working a part-time job. You don't see him raising a family. But he was committed to his purpose. And in that time frame, in those three to three and a half years, we see that Jesus ministered to multitudes in such famous settings as the Sermon on the Mount. You can read that in the early chapters of Matthew where he spoke to them the passages of Scripture that we know as the Beatitudes where he said things like, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. He talked to them about praying with the right heart and doing it with the right motive and he he gave so many powerful lessons as he spoke to multitudes and there were other times that he healed and delivered countless numbers of people in some places it says that he healed every sick person that was there they brought the sick to him and he healed them all and other other times he went into a place and just healed one person the man at the pool of bethesda surrounded by sick people in desperate situations and yet he ministered to one man and he did all of those things because of his compassion for people and his desire to minister to everybody but with the ultimate sacrifice of his life in focus and knowing he knew that he would rise again and that he would usher in a new covenant he would see the new testament church washed in his blood filled with his spirit, his primary purpose through his ministry before Calvary and leading up to Calvary and even in the few short weeks he had after Calvary, his primary purpose that he gave the largest portion of his time and effort to was to make 12 men his disciples. Day in, day out, he was walking with his disciples. He was speaking to them. In fact, So much of what he probably communicated to them and taught them is not recorded in the Gospels. We have portions, we have snapshots of their lives. Amen. That was his primary purpose. And even in some of his final words to the disciples, which we just read in Matthew chapter 28, he instructed them to do that exact same thing, to make disciples. That was his purpose. Amen. He knew that afterwards revival would break out in Jerusalem. He knew that thousands would be added to the church. He knew that there would be people that would stand before rulers and government leaders that would give their testimony. And we want to see those things continue to take place. Amen. We want to see revival break out. We want to see the tens and hundreds and thousands of people filled with the Holy Ghost. And we have have opportunity. We want to stand in places of influence and share the gospel. We want to do those things. But if you are doing your best to be a disciple who is following, serving, and growing, then the next component for you as a disciple is to make a disciple. That's the next part. If we are genuinely doing our best to follow, to serve, and to grow, then our next responsibility, and I use that word deliberately because it's our responsibility, is to become disciple makers that there would be somebody whose life that you could be an example to somebody that you could deliberately demonstrate genuine christianity to 
Somebody who we will take the time to invest in. Invest in someone and show them a reason to have the same hope that we have this morning. And I'm hoping the Lord is going to lay this on us in a fresh way today. But we, we all understand, I hope, that every soul needs to be saved. There aren't people that need saving and people that don't need saving. There aren't people that are going to be okay and people that aren't going to be okay. Every single soul needs the gospel. Amen. We understand that Jesus died for every single soul. When the scripture says, for God so loved the world, it was completely inclusive. It didn't eliminate particular time frames in history. It didn't eliminate particular cultures, particular education levels, particular ethnicities, but God so loved the world. Everybody. Everybody. And people can find God in so many ways. People come in contact with Jesus so many ways. People walk in off the street sometimes to a church service and hear the preached Word of God and God is able to reach them. I've shared it before, but when we were serving in Cairns with Brother and Sister Glass, I very clearly remember one Sunday night in that we were renting a little country women's association hall at the north end of the city of Cairns. And we very, probably not very nicely, but we used to refer to them as the Cranky Women's Association because it didn't matter what we did. They always complained about how we left the hall. And uh, the people were having birthday parties the night before, drinking and leaving beer bottles, and we used to get in trouble if the chairs weren't exactly put back. But we were in this little rented hall, and there was maybe about 20, 25 of us on this Sunday night. Not a single instrument was being played, just voices. No good singers. Well, maybe there were some that thought they were, but... And so it was not the kind of sound that would draw crowds throughout the suburbs. What is that beautiful noise? Nobody thought that, I promise you. But a young lady, her name was Amber. She was walking past that hall on her way to another church. And the Spirit of God reached out to her And drew her into the building and she stood at the very back of that little service and wept through the whole service. I believe it was the power of the Holy Ghost. I don't believe it was our singing. And at the end of the service, we gave an altar call and she came to the front and she stood there and she said to me, what's an altar? And I began to unpack what we mean when we use that word and she was baptized in Jesus' name. And I don't know where she is today, but those things do happen. And I love those stories. I remember many, many years ago as a child, and I may not have the details. Some of you older ones may remember this story. of somebody finding a tract in a street in a mission field somewhere, picking up that dirty tract, making contact, and a church was born in a mission field because somebody found a tract on the footpath. Now, they're incredible stories, but that's not the everyday model. Jesus did not say, go you into all the world and leave a tract on every footpath. He did not say that. He did not say, have church and sing terribly and hope somebody will come in. But those things happen. They happen because of the grace and the mercy of God. Sometimes it's just a church invitation placed in someone's hand. You know, it might be somebody you get a chance to talk to in the shopping center. It might be the person who works at the checkout. You might give them an invitation. And because God has had his hand on that, that might be what it takes. And we have church invitations. If you don't have any in your car or your purse or your wallet, whatever, please keep a couple with you. Because when somebody asks you, it's like, oh, 
you haven't got one, keep one with you. It's a good practice. Try to put it in somebody's hand. Nowadays, in the world we live in, somebody can watch a service online, hear the gospel, and God can speak to them, whether they're sitting there in their homes, they're on the train going somewhere, looking at their phones. God is able to use all of these different vehicles. But whatever the vehicle is that God uses, the Word of God must always be central to the reaching, saving, and discipling of a soul. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18, says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. God, God made, it, made sure that it wasn't going to be something you could achieve through your own intellect. He, but he said it was through the foolishness of preaching that he would save them that believe. It's not through foolish preachers. There's no shortage of them on the internet. But it was through, he, he would choose to use flawed humanity as the vehicle, as the vessel, as the mouthpiece for the most important message this world will ever hear. It must always come back to the Word of God. But what I want to challenge us with this morning is we must shake off a mentality, if we have it, that this only happens between 10 a.m. and midday on a Sunday, or 6 p.m. and half past 7 on a Sunday night, or 4 o'clock in the afternoon at Bassendine. You see, before you ever share a scripture, before you ever teach a lesson of a Bible study, it is your interactions, it is your involvement, it is your investment into another person's life that needs to be a form of the Word of God manifest in the flesh. We know that Jesus was the Word made flesh, and we're not saying we become God, but the Word that is in us needs manifest means revealed, demonstrated, displayed. So before you ever say, hey, did you know the Bible says this? You need to be that message. We need to be the gospel message. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in verses 1 through 3, he said, do we begin again? to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles or letters of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? He said, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men, for as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. There's a few mouthfuls of King James English there, so I'm going to read that from another more modern translation. He said, Are we beginning to praise ourselves again? Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on their behalf? Surely not. He said, The only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is not written with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. 
It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Paul was in no way attempting to say that he and the others that worked with him were awesome. What he was doing was pointing to a genuine disciple-making process. Because he was saying that the people that they were ministering to, the people that they had invested in, that investment was visible and readable, if I can put it like that, to others. He said, you are the demonstration of what we have done. But he also qualified that by saying, he said that, he said, you are a letter from Christ. So he said, it's, it's the Jesus in you that they need to see, not the Paul, not the Apollos. Now, those things filter through, that's how humanity works. But he said, it is the Jesus in you that is the evidence, that is the letter of recommendation of the God that we serve. He said, it's not about other formal methods. He said, they should be able to look at you and see what has been put into you. That is very connected to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, which we've read in recent weeks. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. You know, there's nothing wrong with following somebody's example. That's what disciples do. They follow a teacher. But if you're following somebody, if you're following a spiritual leader that has its place, look over their shoulder every once in a while and see who they're following. Make sure they're following Jesus. Because when we are disciples, we are following and leading at the same time. Paul was a follower and a leader. He was pursuing Jesus. And in that, because of that, he had the confidence to say, if you follow me, that's where I'm going. You see, the important thing we have to ask ourselves is if somebody is following my example, am I happy with the destination? Am I happy with where I'm going if somebody's following me? Or, you know, it's that old bumper sticker, don't follow me, I'm lost too. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to be those the Scripture describes as the blind leading the blind. But if somebody's following us, we want to be connecting them to the one that we are following. Amen. And the closer that we walk to our master, the stronger connection those who follow us can have. Paul was constantly trying to connect the people that he influenced to Jesus. He wasn't building a personality cult. In fact, he went out of his way to say, you know, did, you know is Christ divided? He said, why do I hear? Some of you say you're disciples of Paul and you're disciples of Peter and you're disciples of Apollos. He said, well, you know, did I die for you? He took his responsibility as their apostle and as their teacher, but he was no way trying to make it about him. He was saying it's about Jesus. So make sure whoever follows you that it's always about Jesus, that it's not about us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 17, says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit or to know that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. 
we often stop at verse 17. Verse 17 gets preached a lot. If any be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And we believe that and that excites us and so it should. If you've been born again of water and spirit, then all things are passed away and all things are made new. But there is a flow on from that verse into the verses that follow because after that, when it says all things are become new, the next verse says that all things are of God. So the, the, the things you've just been given that are made new, they come from Him. Amen. And it tells us that He has reconciled us unto Himself. To reconcile is to restore a relationship. It's to bring together parties that are at odds at ver- various degrees for one reason or another. And it's to remove things that are in the middle that hinder that relationship. In our case, He dealt with our sins. He dealt with that gulf that was between us and him that we spoke about this morning and made it possible for us to be restored or reconciled to our God. That's what the cross did. But although he is the one that made that possible, it then says that that ministry of reconciliation is given to us. It's given to us. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's you and me. It's given to us. And then again, we are reminded that we didn't make reconciliation possible. It says, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world. There's there's a mixture. If you look at those four verses, it mixes the language of the fact that he made it possible, but its ongoing responsibility is ours. There's a reminder of two things. One, don't think you can save somebody's soul. But two, you have a responsibility to connect them to the one who can. That's what that passage tells us about. And because he revealed himself in Christ, made it possible for us to be reconciled to God, we now are given the ministry. That means we are to serve in reconciliation. And we are given the word of reconciliation. When you put those two ideas together, we have the responsibility and we have the message that is given to us. And then the last verse, verse 20, says that we are ambassadors. We are representatives of God that through as God has he has commissioned us to serve in Christ's stead. Or what that means is that we would continue the work that he did, that he made possible to urge people to be reconciled to God. This is an awesome responsibility. But it's also an awesome honor and a privilege that God wants to use you and I to help people to become reconciled to Him, to be restored in relationship to Him. And whether we realize it or not, this I think most of us get this concept, but people are reading our lives all the time. All the time. On the job, at school, in the shopping center, at family gatherings. And I've shared this before, but I have a, I have a habit when I go to the, to the grocery store in our local shopping center... I try to go to the same person at the checkout, if I can, regularly. Or try to be a repeat visitor because I'm trying to begin to talk to somebody. I'm trying to begin to form some sort of... You don't get a lot of time when somebody's scanning your vegetables, you know. But if you see them every week, you get a chance to, you know, you'll find out bits and pieces and you make that connection. And so sometimes I'll even join the longer queue just so I can interact with that person. 
I was talking to an old lady who was working at the checkout at Woolworths just last week and, and she obviously recognises me, hopefully not as a stalker, but as a regular in the shopping centre. And she said, oh, where's your wife? I said, oh, she's not with me. I'm just doing the shopping on my own today. And I said, she normally comes in with, the, with, with Natalie, her friend. And she said to me, she said, she said she's really nice, your wife. I thought, she's picked that up. They don't, they don't have coffee together. But my wife's gone through that checkout enough times. She said, you were nice too, Sister Natalie, just so you didn't feel left out. But you make an impact. People are reading you all the time. Amen. And if you are living for Jesus, you are going to be different. We're not different deliberately just to be a weirdo. You know, not just, I'm just going to be weird. I'm going to be different. You know, that, that's not, but God makes us different. And there is a reason for our difference, and it is real. There are all kinds of different out there. There's more kinds of different now than there ever have been before. But what makes a child of God special is what sets us apart. I want to take a couple of minutes, if I can, to emphasize something that I think will probably be obvious, but it's vital if we're going to be genuine disciple makers. The first thing is the gospel message is the only message whereby we can be saved. I hope we all believe that. If you think it's just an option, then you need to take a fresh look at that. The gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that you must be born again of water and spirit is the only way to be saved from our sins and to, as Brother Slack used to love to say, to be ready for heaven going. We need to be ready for heaven going. And this message that we have is a precious, priceless commodity. But we are not investment bankers. It is the best product that is out there, but we are not salespeople. And we want everybody to know about the gospel, but we are not in advertising. In fact, our motivation, our motivation for our involvement in disciple making is the most important factor. Why do we want to make a disciple? What is the real motive? And I want you to listen to me carefully and if you think I've got something wrong here, you can talk to me afterwards. But getting people to church is the wrong motive. People said, didn't you just tell me to invite somebody to church? Yes, I did. Give me a moment. Even simply the idea of teaching them a Bible study is the wrong motivation. And to a certain degree, simply wanting them to be born again so we can tick a box like they've been vaccinated is also the wrong motivation. The moment that someone feels like you just want them to come to your church or they're just a target for a Bible study or or that you just want them to get baptized and they feel like they're ticking off a box, it's going to be received as false or fake. If people feel like you only help them so that they'll become a Christian like you, then something is missing. If you think back to our last lesson, we talked about how a disciple is someone who is growing. We talked about change. We used a passage of Scripture from Second Peter chapter 1 that gave us a list of things that we were to add to our faith, that we were, there were ingredients in our growth process. And I don't know that anybody's memorized that list, but the last two things that were on that list in Second Peter chapter 1 is brotherly kindness and charity or love, genuine love. In the Gospel of Mark, the 12th chapter, Jesus was challenged with the question, which is the first 
or the most important commandment of all. And in Mark 12 and starting at verse 29, Jesus' response, it says, And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And then he said, And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And in one, one account of that conversation, the person he was speaking to said that, that he acknowledged that was accurate. And, he said, and, and we are told that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, if you can keep these two commandments, you're keeping everything that God ever required of humanity. Love God with everything we have. Love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, when we love our neighbor as we love ourselves... Of course, we will want them to come to church. We'll want to do a Bible study with them, and we will definitely want them to be born again. But when our motive is love, God's love, we will still love them if they don't come to church. We'll still love them if we don't get to teach them a Bible study. And we'll still love them even if they never get born again. Because it's genuine love. There's a slight difference between the two examples I'm giving. I hope you're picking up what I'm saying this morning. It's good to want people to come to church. Please don't stop inviting people to come to church. It's awesome to teach Bible studies. You can all teach a Bible study. You're sitting thinking, no, Pastor, I don't know how to teach a Bible study. You can teach a Bible study. We want to see everybody born again. But it is the foundation of our motivation that makes the difference. Because if people know that you genuinely love them, they may just want to know why and how. This world doesn't need fake. they got enough of that. In fact, one of the saddest things about our world right now is that in their desperation for meaning and purpose, they're creating new ways to be fake. Like there weren't enough. They're coming up with new ideas, new identities, new definitions, trying to find something of value, all the while adding to their emptiness. But you need, we need to be very careful that we come from a platform of that love of God because we are not trying to make a sale. We're not trying to close a deal. We want people to know the power and the love of Jesus Christ. And that must be our motivation. That must be our demonstration. Amen. You cannot make disciples without the love of God. You cannot make disciples out of everyone you know and meet. You can't disciple the whole city of Perth. Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. Jesus was doing what he did all day, every day, and he only had 12, and one of them failed. So don't think you can disciple the entire city. You should be kind to everybody you meet. You should be loving and respectful to everyone you meet, but you can't disciple every single person that you have contact with. Discipleship or making disciples is a one-on-one -on -one process. It takes relationship. It's about taking someone on your journey with you. Now, remember Jesus and his disciples. Jesus, in those three to three and a half years, put up with some junk from his disciples. If you're going to disciple somebody, you need to be willing to put up with some junk. 
You know, he's, he's probably thinking, I'm come to be the sacrifice for the whole world and you guys are arguing about who gets to sit next to me in heaven? Who gets to be the most important? Squabbling amongst themselves, having their own little infighting and issues. And he must have felt like sometimes, like, am I leading disciples or am I running a daycare center? But he put up with their humanity because he was invested in their eternity. And it was into their hands that he committed our eternity. Because if they weren't disciples, then there would have been nobody there in Acts chapter 2. There wouldn't have been a message. There wouldn't have been a New Testament church. The longer I've been thinking a lot about this lately, I don't know why. But we are, when we're in the kingdom of God, since Calvary to the rapture, we are all in some long relay race. You didn't start the race. And you're probably not going to finish it. I mean, you might, when Jesus comes back, you might still be running, but we are in a leg. And it is our job to take that baton and it is our job to pass it on. We did not create it. It was not born with us, but somebody else gave it to us. And God expects us to pass it on. None of us do anything in this life forever. It is appointed unto man once to die. You have a period of time. And in that period of time, we need to pursue the will of God and decide what matters and what does not. Amen. You know, I was, I don't know, some of you, I'm going to be sensitive as I share this, but some of you may have seen Anthony Trimble's funeral online. Brother Trimble spoke about how when his son was first diagnosed with cancer and he was going to be having treatment every couple of weeks, and when he had that treatment that it was going to basically wipe him out for a period of time, that he was, not, was going to be affected by the treatment and not able to do a lot of his normal things. He said to his dad, he said, I have to look at this year no longer as if I have 52 weeks, but I only have 26 weeks this year. And he said, I have to make those weeks count. And he started to change the way he lived and look at the things that mattered and get up early and do things that were important and and change the focus of his time. And, and, And it's kind of a mindset we all need to think about. It does often take something that dramatic or that drastic for us to have those thoughts. But we have, we, you have a leg in this race to run. And what matters is the impact that continues when we're gone. You know, if the Lord tarries and, and I pass away, any impact that I've had as a pastor is only going to be revealed in what continues. And I pray that God uses us as flawed vessels to have an impact that outlives us. Amen. You know, we're going to have to put up with each other's junk. We're going to have to put up with people whose lives we're trying to impact. We're going to have to put up with their drama and their junk as well because, you know what, we have junk too. We've all got stuff in our own lives that we have to, people have been patient with us. It should be our heart's desire that your love for somebody will lead that person to wanting to come to church with you, to wanting a Bible study, to being impacted by your testimony. And you all have a testimony. Never undervalue your testimony. You can teach a Bible study. You may not be a Bible scholar. You may not be a Bible school teacher, but you can teach a Bible study. You can share scriptural basics with somebody else. And if they have questions you don't have answers to, find somebody to give you the answers and take them to them. You can make disciples. Amen. All of us can make disciples. Last week we stated that each of us is responsible 
for our own spiritual growth. In the church, ministry of the word, the various programs and structures the church has, they're all there to provide a framework for our spiritual life. But the actual living, the actual growing is up to me and it's up to you. It's up to us to grow. It's up to us to live the way the Lord wants us to live. It's up to us to decide to be in God's house. It's up to me to decide to pray. It's up to me to decide to be in the Word of God. It's up to me to decide to join in fellowship whenever I can because I understand how important it is. It's not somebody else's responsibility. We're living in an age where everything is someone else's responsibility. It's your responsibility. It is your responsibility to get to heaven. It is my responsibility to do everything I can to help you, but it is your responsibility to make the choices that determine your eternity. That's in your hands. And you don't do that by some magic process or some experience that just makes everything work. You do it by each day being a disciple, each day following, serving, growing. It happens every day. And just in exactly the same level as we are responsible for our own growth, we are all responsible for making disciples. If you want to be a disciple, you are not given that to be a cul-de-sac, to be a dead-end street. It is to flow through you to someone else. In fact, the truth is that part of our growth spiritually is to progress from being a disciple to being also a disciple maker. To being, you know, you don't go up to the person on the job and say, hey, would you like to fill out this form and be my disciple? It's not going to work. You might even get the sack nowadays. But it's about making a conscious effort to be that epistle to be that evidence of the power of God. You will always be more successful in reaching people by who you are before what you say. That's what makes the difference. You know, when John the Baptist ministered, he was a straight shooter. Amen. He didn't, he didn't package things gently. He, he called it how it was, and he was very strong in his rebuke of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. But when it came to the publicans, now a publican in, in modern day Australia is the person who owns the pub. But in the New Testament period of history, it is generally assumed that they were tax collectors. Often they were people from within the Jewish community who worked for the Romans to collect taxes. And so they were not popular people. They were people that the general community did not like, looked down upon. They considered them traitors probably. And many of them were corrupt and, and charging extra tax so they could take their own bit on the side. It was an undesirable job. It was an undesirable person. However, it's exactly defined. But the scripture says in Luke chapter 3 and verse 12, when John, when John was ministering, it says, Then came also publicans to be baptized. And said unto him, Master, what shall we do? To John the Baptist. And he began to talk to them about their honesty, about not overcharging. He began to give them instruction about how to straighten out their lives. And if you read on in that chapter, the, the next verse talks about soldiers coming to him. As whether they were Roman soldiers or Jews that were working in some sort of capacity, it doesn't exactly say. But they came to him and he told them what they needed to hear. These are the people that we need to try to be making disciples out of. Those that are perhaps less attractive than other people like to be. Because you see, just a short while later in Matthew chapter 9, 
Starting at verse 10, it says, It came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now, I, I knew that Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. I knew that he took some, some criticism for it, but it says that they came and sat down with him. There was a desire in their hearts. And verse 11 says, When the Pharisees saw it, those religious holy people, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that are whole, or those that are healthy, don't need a physician. They don't need a doctor. It's the sick that need a doctor. And he said, But go you and learn what that means. Now, there's a powerful statement. He said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Matthew, or Levi as he's also known, in the very verse before was a tax collector. He's one of those undesirable people who Jesus had called to follow him, to be his disciple. And so when you read the other Gospels, it seems likely that Matthew was the one that put on this feast. He put on the dinner party for him and all his undesirable friends. And Jesus was there and they came and they sat with Jesus and his disciples and ate with them. This is a picture of making disciples. The religious were offended at Jesus. But he said that he was more interested in mercy than their religious ceremonies. See, if you're going to be a disciple maker, you've got to spend time with somebody. You've got to sit with people. You've got to eat with people. Now, that may not always be in your home. Everybody's situation is different. You, you know, you're living in a share house. You've got to be respectful of other people. If you've got unsafe family, you don't just bring everybody home for dinner. It may be as simple as sitting at the lunch table at school or the break room at work. Whatever that looks like, it's about demonstrating God to people. It's not necessarily about preaching. I've heard people say, well, I told them they need to be saved and they didn't want to hear it. That makes me angry. Because <laughs> if that worked, we'd just do that and everybody would be saved. You just go into town, find the most populated, densely populated areas and just tell them all. You're going to hell, get saved. Doesn't work. Even Jesus didn't use that model. He brought love. He brought compassion. And then he dealt with sin. He spoke, he, when he came to the woman at the well, he didn't say, you filthy, immoral, horrible woman. But he spoke to her about living water. And when she began to thirst for living water, he said, let's deal with the root of the problem. Amen. Bless the Lord. We need to use our day-to-day -day lives, our neighbors, our workmates. And I know we've heard these things before, but I'm trying to stir us up. Some of you know, some of you don't know that Sister Natalie and I used to work at a restaurant together. And that was where Sister Natalie came in contact with the church, but it wasn't just Sister Natalie. There were many others. I, I had a kitchen on the, the front of the restaurant where it was like my own little section, and people would come to talk. People would come to ask questions. I didn't preach. I was careful how I handled I just tried to care for them. I picked people up for work when they'd lost their driver's license for having too much to drink. You do what you can to demonstrate the love of God. And many of the people we worked with responded to the gospel. Some of you know them by name. They're not all walking with God today, but that's between them and God. When I worked in Cairns, and I'm, I'm using my own examples, I'm certainly not, I don't consider myself a good soul winner, so please don't think that's what I'm trying to say. I worked at Woolworths in the city of Cairns. People there that I got to talk to. 
people there that my wife and I were able to befriend that came to our home for dinner. We went to their home for dinner. People that sat in an in-store bakery and wept as I communicated to them about the love that God had for them. People that got baptized in Jesus' name. Before that, we were in Townsville. I worked in another kitchen. Brother Paul Nightingale, who now pastors the church in Townsville, he and I worked together and we did what we could to reach to the people that worked in the shop out the front, that drove the delivery van, that did whatever we could. And people got saved through that process as well. It's about caring about people. It's, about, it's not about being preachers. You know, the Apostle Paul, and I, I could be wrong on this because I didn't take a lot of time to check and I don't like to preach false doctrine. But when Saul of Tarsus was heading for Damascus with such a passion to destroy the church, such he, he had a zeal that was just white hot and it was just in the wrong direction. That's the problem. And when the Lord interrupted his journey, and if you know the story, he was blinding light just, and the Lord spoke to him from heaven and the Lord took his sight away temporarily and he had this incredible, that's why we call it a Damascus Road experience. And so he's, the people he was with, they took him and they led him by the hand into Damascus. And in Acts chapter 9, this is not in the slides, it says in verse 10, it doesn't say there was a certain international evangelist at Damascus named Ananias the seasoned, mature senior pastor of the church of Damascus, Brother Ananias, it says a certain disciple named Ananias that God spoke to and said, there's this man I want you to go pray for. And Ananias had some genuine concerns that every one of us would have had going to meet Saul of Tarsus. You know, if I said this morning, if you knew, if we were living there, he said, I need a volunteer to teach a Bible study to Saul of Tarsus. Everybody become fascinated with the floor. Ananias was like, are you sure, God? Do you know who this guy is? But he wasn't some famous, he wasn't one of the original 12. He wasn't a missionary. He was a certain disciple. And if you are born again of water and spirit and doing your best to serve God this morning, you are a certain disciple. And God wants to use you to minister to somebody, to lay hands on somebody. The commission is not given to the ministry team. The commission is given to the body of Christ, to all of us, to be his disciples. I want you to stand with me this morning if you would.